You're listening to BAU, Business as Unusual, the podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements, organisations and ideas that are shifting the way we think, interact and transact. Before we start this, I just wanted to say a quick thank you to Anthony Neat and Vivian Gibson Thomas. Yeah, they're the lovely people that you're hearing. Um, let you know where you're actually sitting because Joe and I don't often do that. So thanks, and Viv, doing a huge job there. I tried to do it last episode, um, bringing you home all the way, um, and it got a bit creepy as as you will. Did it did? It felt like I don't know someone was sneaking up on you that you didn't want to meet. Yep. Yeah. So thanks, Ant and Viv, for doing it so well. So Fiona Armstrong, she's definitely been flexing in the climate debate for a long time and she's pulling it in a certain angle and a healthy angle or a health angle. Yeah, so a lot of Fiona's work is really about drawing the parallels and drawing the connection between what's actually going on with climate change and actually how that's actually affecting, one, our health, but then also um, our future health. And I think, you know, the really interesting part about what she actually has to share is this this idea that we actually have one Earth, but also that we actually have one body. And being able to actually make, I think, climate change through actual health outcomes. And, you know, I think, you know, hopefully she'll be able to speak to us about some of the significant things that we're already starting to see in terms of kind of health decline. So, you know, I'm really looking forward to hearing how Fiona, who's really been able to build a significant, um, I think, you know, kind of actual consensus, which, again, is incredibly hard to do um, behind, um, you know, this this issue. And then actually being able to actually get not just government, but also kind of health stakeholders and other kind of um, major kind of community partners to actually get behind um, and help support the link between climate and health. Yeah, it's an incredible feat that she's done. And you'll hear in there, she's been doing it eight years, voluntary with a little bit of help and now starting to get a bit of traction. Um, But the most exciting thing that I I feel when I was drawing the dots is just how, how immediate that argument brings it to trying to implement serious drastic change and and hearing Fiona talk I suppose on a policy level and how to get government organizations to work together is 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 an art and the fact that she was born and grew up in a very rural environment is mm. is a testament um, I was very fascinated with that with that yeah, aspect me of too, Fiona's. me too and uh, you know I'm, I'm the eldest of six and I think she's the the second youngest of seven and uh, you know I certainly didn't grow up anywhere nearly as remote as she did but I think what what I kind of really enjoyed about what she shared with us is just actually what that's given her and then how she's actually taken that and applied that to the actual task that she's faced with and I think she's doing it from a genuine perspective of love of the place that we actually get to call home but equally I think she's got the resilience and the independence to actually go into large-scale bureaucratic environments like government and actually enact change so it's a yeah she's a tremendous lady and it was a pleasure to get to hear her story my name is Fiona Armstrong I'm the founder and executive director of the Climate and Health Alliance Uh, so we're a coalition of groups that has been working together since 2010 Uh, we responded to a call from the international medical journal The Lancet that documented the health impacts of climate change and in a very comprehensive commission in 2009 and called for the health sector to demonstrate leadership on climate change and health. So really um, calling out for the health sector to step up um, on climate change and to 
um, frame the threat of climate change for humankind as a health issue, which was what they were calling for. Um, at that time, I had been working in advocacy for policy in a different setting. I was involved in what was called the Australian Healthcare Reform Alliance, which was another advocacy coalition that had had quite a lot of success in getting in the incoming Rudd government in 2007 to take on a very um, a reformist agenda, really, around health policy and committing to quite dramatic reform of health systems, policy and governance. So I knew that bringing together organisations with a common agenda for advocacy can be effective. Um, and in that case, you know, influence the national government to implement quite significant changes in terms of how it funded that policy area and so on. Of course, with Rudd being displaced, that um, ambitious policy agenda, you know, didn't really come to fruition or certainly not to the extent that we anticipated at that time. But in 2009, when it looked like it was headed in the right direction, I felt confident to leave it to go on that path and to turn my attention to a topic that was keeping me awake at night, um, and that was the impacts of climate change on health. And I was aware from having worked as a health journalist and worked in health policy for several years for the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation, leading their professional and policy team that and working with a very wide range of health stakeholders through the Australian Healthcare Reform Alliance, that there wasn't a lot of um, climate literacy, I guess, among the, within the health sector. There wasn't a kind of recognition of climate change as a health issue. And I also was aware that among climate policymakers that there was almost no recognition that there would be implications for health. And um, so I decided to use the model that had been successful in advocacy on another issue to, to explore the idea to um, bring together an advocacy coalition around climate change and health. So we um, formed Climate and Health Alliance in 2010 with a agenda to influence policy, to support the health sector, to walk the talk and to reduce its own contribution to climate change through cutting emissions and becoming more environmentally sustainable. And we've been doing that ever since. Just curious to how, how it all started for you um, 10 years ago. Well, do you have the same, the same ethos, obviously, but do you have the same principles, the same structure that's running right now and the same tact, I suppose, to get people behind your movement and the industry on board? And how was, how was it starting off afresh? Was it completely clean or was there already networks there for yourself? It sounds very much like there was, but um, were people backing it straight away? Um, well, there were networks, and when we formed, I think in 2010, I'm writing our 10-year anniversary report at the moment, so I've been thinking about this and looking back at some of those documents. So there's about 20 organisations, I think, that signed up to be members at that time. Um, we now have about 40, so we've doubled in size. We actually worked as a volunteer-led organisation for eight years, so... It's only in the last couple of years that we've been able to attract sufficient philanthropic 
funding um, to expand our team. So I worked as a volunteer for our first eight years, largely, apart from a bits of program funding here and there. So what's changed in the last couple of years is having more philanthropic backing, um, which has allowed us to expand our team and um, hire more people and, you know, with more capacity, we've begun to expand. So we've actually increased in size quite a lot um, in the last couple of years and increased our income quite a bit How over the last few the years as well. about the impact also? Well, I'd like to think the impact has, has in, increased. I think, yes, we've had an impact. I think we had an impact as a volunteer-led organisation too. I mean, as a volunteer-led organisation, we led the well we developed the first ever climate and health policy roadmap in 2017 which was adopted by the Australian Labor Party as a policy position so um, having done a you know massive consultation with the sector to do a kind of needs assessment I guess to understand what the priorities and concerns were of the health sector about climate change and what they wanted to see in a national public policy response, we took those insights and developed a policy framework which was adopted, you know, immediately by the ALP as a policy position. I guess what what they were responding to was the authorising environment that was provided by having so many different healthcare stakeholders back it. So we had, you know, 40 or 50 organisations all saying, yes, we endorse this approach. So you know, they looked at it, I guess, and said, well, there's our mandate for doing that. Um, unfortunately, they didn't win the election uh, last year, so mm-hmm. they, they haven't yet implemented it, but they have reinforced their commitment to do that on a couple of occasions. And in the Eden Monaro by-election, the Labor, new Labor MP has, um, you know, reconfirmed their support for that position. So... You know, no small feat to get, you know, as an NGO to develop a policy framework that that's picked up in its entirety by a political party. Of course, it's something else to see it implemented by the party of government. But what that policy framework has been influential in doing in, has been in guiding um, subnational policy. So just like in climate and energy policy, the jurisdictions, state and territory governments are having to do the heavy lifting on climate change because the federal government really doesn't have any climate policies to speak of, not ones that reduce emissions anyway. And as the health impacts of climate change become more apparent, state and territory governments are looking you know, for guidance and for exemplars that they can draw on to implement policy on the topic and what they find is our framework. So it's influencing policy in a number of states and territories, in particular Queensland, who commissioned us to write their climate, um, human health and wellbeing climate adaptation plan a couple of years ago. We're seeing Victoria, you know, making um, commitments to prioritise climate in its public health and wellbeing plan. The ACT government in its climate change plan has referenced our work and committed to joining our green and healthy hospitals network and um, a number of other jurisdictions we know are drawing on the framework as are local governments, particularly in Victoria, who 
are obliged to address climate change in their public health and wellbeing plans. Oh, that's all, that's all fantastic, Fiona. And what? Um, I mean, what are the links? So if you come back all the way to kind of the start point of this and, you know, the Lancet starting to look at the actual health impacts of climate change, if you can share with the listeners what are the actual impacts and then if you can maybe just take us through how the health communities actually come together around those and and maybe just share the actual framework um, that you've used to really build that consensus. Because I think it's it's such a climate change obviously impacts everything. But as you said, it's not often linked to actual health outcomes. So if you can perhaps kind of step us through what that article actually said and then how you've actually been able to build really a consensus point around um, inside the healthcare community on the impacts of climate change would be fantastic. Yeah, so the health impacts of climate change, well, they're many and varied, unfortunately. I mean, they um, virtually every aspect of our health and well-being is impacted by climate change in some way. You know, climate change um, doesn't cause a particular disease or um, it really just exacerbates the risk of many different kinds of illnesses and diseases. So the ones that we're most familiar with in Australia are around the impact, the health impacts associated with extreme weather events. So, you know, we're seeing increased intensity and frequency of extreme weather events like floods, storms, heat waves, bushfires. So, you know, the black summer that we've just experienced um, in eastern Australia with those unprecedented bushfires that sent smoke into the upper atmosphere, equivalent, meteorologists say, to a nuclear blast. Um, you know, the, the health impacts associated with that from being people being displaced from their homes, from obviously from dying from the bushfires or injuries associated with that, but then the health impacts associated with, you know, the, the fear and trauma of experiencing that event, the loss of livelihood, loss of income, loss of your home, Um, all of those things, you know, lead to both physical and mental health impacts um, and similar to, you know, to other um, extreme weather. Then there's infectious diseases. So we're right in the middle of a pandemic of an infectious disease, which is linked to climate change in the sense that climate change worsens biodiversity loss, puts pressure on biodiversity and contributes to ecosystems, the decline in the health of ecosystems. So our behaviour as humans in clearing habitat, in terms of industrial farming, in terms of going into um, pristine wilderness areas and ecosystems um, and creating human settlements there, um, puts pressure on other species. And that means that we're in closer proximity to other species that we've compromise their health they are themselves more prone to disease and we're closer to them and they are less well and diseases are much more likely to jump from animals to humans so that's exactly what we've seen with covid we think mm-hmm. um that it's a zoonosis um uh, which is a disease that spread from animals to humans and three quarters of all new infectious diseases are, are coming through zoonosis through um, animals to human transition transmission. So COVID-19 is um, an example of an infectious disease that a warming climate um, will increase the likelihood of those occurring. And um, 
yeah, it's a pretty significant impact. So it sure is. Um, yeah. You know, then there's food and water security. I mean, the Australia, the driest continent on earth, um, becoming drier in many places and in other places um, experiencing much heavier rainfall, but on balance becoming drier. And that means, you know, that's got huge implications for access to water. We've got many towns in Australia now running out of water, that are out of water and are trucking water in. And that's only going to continue. So, you know, think about the implications for that for water quality, um, you know, access to water for activities of daily living. But then what happens when a bushfire ha when it comes, you know, when you don't have access to water? And obviously you need a good water supply to, to grow food. And um, so that's, that's an issue. Heat is a, a huge issue in Australia and we're seeing temperature rises now that um, mean that by the end of this century, parts of Australia will be uninhabitable. Um, well before the end of this century, actually. I mean, there's parts of the Northern Territory. I have colleagues who are public health physicians in the Northern Territory and they say, you know, places like Catherine and Alice Springs won't be possible to be outside in really? 10 years' time. Jeez. They will be essentially uninhabitable. Um, and, you know, there's lots of different people who are particularly vulnerable to the health impacts of climate change. So, you know, I've just referred to remote communities, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, because on balance their health is poorer than other people in Australia because of, you know, the effects of... Um, colonization and discrimination um, over many over centuries um, means that they die much earlier than other people um, and experience a much higher rate of chronic disease so they are them they are more vulnerable to climate change as are all people who experience chronic illness um, and children and the elderly obviously particularly vulnerable as well but people who are living in remote parts of Australia where we're seeing those temperature extremes or that are being exposed to food or water insecurity. Um, and you don't need to be in a remote part of Australia, unfortunately, to experience food insecurity because, uh, you know, the social economic divide in Australia is such now that we have many people who are living on the urban fringe mm. who are, you know, experiencing poverty and, uh, and food insecurity because they're not able to buy good quality fresh food. You're listening to BAU, Business as Unusual, the podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements, organisations and ideas that are shifting the way we think, interact and transact. Your hosts, Patrick Beggs of Per Production, a production house that works with organisations to create media that strengthens culture and communicates that culture to the world. And Joe Rogers, CEO of The Contenders, a brand agency famous for crafting brands which deliver results for those who work for them, shop for them and support them. For more information, head to baupod.co. And if you find this podcast insightful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to our conversations. We definitely hit it on the head across the front and all over that health and climate change are directly linked. Um, I'd really like to know, though, how you came to fight so passionately for this. Like, where did Fiona Armstrong grow up, and when did you start um, 
lifting your first placard and really and really getting your teeth stuck in? Um, look, I, I'm, I think I was quite late to activism, really, and probably took a while of doing this work before I would have considered myself a, an activist, but I certainly do now. I think, um, well, my background is that I grew up in far western Queensland on a sheep and cattle property in a very remote part of the country. We we're 50 miles from the nearest town on a uh, a property that was 80,000 acres. I think it had 100 miles of boundary fencing. We were an hour from our nearest neighbour, an hour from the nearest town. Uh, we we're all homeschooled. We we're largely self-sufficient. You know, we didn't have access to mains power or water, so we um, we had a diesel generator for electricity. We grew lots of our own food, um, and I guess that sort of connection to land. Um, and a you know deep connection to the natural environment um, and existing in so much of it um, probably engendered a, you know recognition of how important it is and also how fragile it is because those you know landscapes in outback Australia are incredibly fragile. Mm, yeah. and, um, and then I guess evolving as I you know in terms of an environmental awareness as I worked as a nurse my first profession was as a registered nurse and um, I guess in particular when I began working in operating rooms just witnessing the absolutely astonishing amount of waste that gets generated in that um, you know clinical context is incredible uh, much worse of course at the moment with the COVID pandemic and everybody needing personal protective equipment absolutely skyrocketed but yeah I certainly became you know active in an environmental role when I was working as a in a clinical environment setting up you know recycling systems and trying to get environment waste management committees established and so on but it probably I I think I was a bit late to the party on climate change it wasn't really until about 2008 that I became aware of it and I became aware of it no earlier than that, probably about 2005 when I was um, became aware of the work of Tony McMichael who's a preeminent epidemiologist working on climate change and health. Um, he was Australian and his work was world leading and, and until his death in 2014 he was certainly the leading researcher on climate change and health in the world and reading about his work and being aware, you know, that it wasn't being implemented, that those, you know, those insights about the profound implications for health from climate change weren't being recognised, I guess, you know, spurred me to wanting to use policy as a, as a tool for... Um, you know, tackling large societal problems as it should be, um, and to and to work towards seeing policy developed to tackle that issue. And Fiona, how have you built um, consensus around that policy? So, I mean, I think one of the challenges of of climate change, as you've been pointing out, is that there's so many different aspects that it affects. And you know, the human condition is that we tend not to be able to deal with multifaceted problems where something's inherent in every single aspect of of life, and we're unable to actually almost wrap our heads around um, the actual extent of of the issue. 
But I think, you know, having listened to this conversation today, it's quite clear that you've actually been able to build a clear consensus behind a point of view. And to me, um, I'm wondering about how you you actually had to work through that process and how you brought so many people from different aspects actually to, to one point to develop the policy itself. Yeah, I guess the, the the principle around stakeholder engagement and alliance building is actually really simple. It's about collaboration and consultation. So we've always worked very hard to make sure that the people who are affected by this problem and who are, you know, um, have an important role in the solution are engaged in developing the positions or the, the policy positions. So we've done a lot of work in engaging health professionals, health organisations in order to build consensus um, around policy positions. So I guess that's an important principle. It's not that, I mean, health, prof- health organisations largely, you know, for as long as I've been doing this work, readily accept the science of climate change and the urgency of action. So engaging them in um, a position around urgent action hasn't been difficult. Um, they've been willing to support that for a considerable period. One of the challenges of working with health organisations and health professionals, though, is that they are very busy delivering health care generally and and are saving lives, you know, and, and addressing risks that, require action in the course of seconds or minutes or weeks or months, whereas we're trying to build, you know, an agenda for action that requires implementation for a result that will take decades and centuries to realise. So... Which is the hardest? Um, Which is the hardest thing for the climate change argument is how to make it immediate. And it sounds like you're making inroads in there. One thing that I found very interesting about your story is that you were homeschooled, so being able to, and in a very remote place, did you say 100 kilometres from anywhere other than uh, We're 50 home? miles from the nearest town, so it's about 75 kilometres, yeah. Yeah, and how many brothers and sisters did you have? Oh, there was a lot of us. There was seven. <laughs> there was seven. Okay, so, no, where, so where, did, where did you come in the order? Um, I'm the sixth of seven, so oh, there was right. an 18-year span between the oldest and the youngest. So the oldest ones had gone away to boarding school by the time, um, you know, my brothers who were closest to me in age were at school. But yes, there was there was quite a lot of us. We were our own community as a family. <laughs> okay. And what what do you do? You have anything to say for people uh, experiencing, I suppose? Um, homeschooling for the first time, like to speak to the now, I suppose. Oh gosh. Um, well, I mean, one of the one of the differences that we had was a very vast expanse to escape to and lots of jobs to do um, when we weren't being homeschooled. So our schooling never took place beyond the morning. Um, we were, you know, out at work helping our father, building fences, mustering sheep or cattle or, you know, being involved in animal husbandry or other sort of tasks around the property for, um, you know, a good deal of the day, which teaches you, you know, lots of different skills about finding practical solutions to problems and assuming leadership when, you know, there isn't anybody else to turn to and you're alone in a paddock of you know, several thousand acres and you can't quite remember the way home. Um, So, 
I guess that was the difference. So I think, you know, I guess I, I, my advice would be that there are many lessons um, that are valuable in the context of homeschooling that don't involve sitting down at a desk and writing or, you know, reading even, that there's there's lots of learning that can happen in, in different contexts. But I, I can... I don't know how people who are trying to work full-time would manage homeschooling. I think that would be incredibly challenging and actually just not possible. You know, yeah, yeah. It's certainly, it's a, you know, I think it's going to be an ongoing challenge over the over the next period of time for, for sure with COVID. And, yeah. you know, coming back to, to one of the things you, you shared before is that trying to, you know, to me, it's, it's really interesting that there's a really clear line between one, your appreciation of the world, your, your desire to actually build um, consensus, but also then lead um, where that's actually um, heading. And one of the things I often step back and try to think about from a climate sense, and, you know, there's no doubt there's parallels between, for example, what you're sharing with COVID in terms of um, disease starting to cross over, because broadly, most ecosystems are now unhealthier than they've ever been. And so mm-hmm. from from your perspective, I mean, what what is it that actually does have to change? And what is the time frame that um, you believe we actually have? So if you look out into the future, what changes do we actually have to make in the next 10 years to actually have a chance of arresting some of the climate um, impacts that we're seeing today? Yeah, well, there's a lot that we need to do and there's a lot that we need to do quickly, but it's not as simple as saying, you know, we have to do X by here or this will happen. You know, there's a whole series of increments that change the course of the outcome depending on how much of something we do. So, yes, it's important that we act really quickly um, and that we implement, you know, as as quickly as possible, a very comprehensive agenda to transition away from fossil fuels, to reduce our emissions, to restore our ecosystems. And in in doing that, we need to be focusing on the sort of social um, environment that is causing so many people to be disadvantaged and and therefore. Um, disproportionately impacted by climate change and and other things like COVID-19. So that it means that while we're implementing that agenda, which is a technological and policy agenda, we also need to be thinking about the social and human conditions that are contributing to, you know, racial injustice and social and economic inequality and so on. And we need to be tackling those together. Um, in terms of the time frame that we have, well, I think, you know, in the decade that I've been working on this, we've been saying each decade is the last. Um, certainly the, the, you know, calls that are coming out from scientists now and what we're seeing in terms of the observation around ecosystem breakdown and, well, civil breakdown, I guess, mm. too, um, to an extent um, is beginning to happen and may happen much more quickly than the predictions of bodies like the Intergovernmental on Climate Panel on Climate Change, whose reports are incredibly important and um, bring together, you know, a huge body of evidence. But the the fact that they happen over such long time frames and they require negotiation by so many parties to agree the text means that you do end up with a sort of lowest common denominator and they're not as accurate as studies that are being published you know um very recently so 
it does seem clear that we will get to tipping points that may become irreversible within the next decade unless we reduce our emissions. So we maybe, maybe you know, if COVID continues, um, we buy ourselves a little bit of time, but it's not to say that the drop in emissions that we're seeing during this period of lockdown across the world from COVID is is going to make a difference to the climate trajectory unless it is sustained over a much longer period. Yeah, it's and it's not perhaps not the way <laughs> perhaps not the way we want to get there either. I would and I it's wouldn't not suspect the way that we no. want to get there either. So I think you know one of the ch- challenges that we've had and one of the failures that we've um, I think experienced in trying to get people to understand what needs to happen and what the time frame is to happen is that we've talked so much about numbers that are essentially meaningless. We've talked about the need, the difference between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees or we've talked about, you know, the difference between 350 parts per million or 450 parts per million and we've talked about, you know, gigatons in terms of carbon budgets and I think people largely, including policymakers, um, consider those numbers to be meaningless. It doesn't lead to a kind of tangible sense of what are the, it's hard to put the environmental, person in there. social it's, outcomes. Yeah, it's, it's hard to put the person in there. And so what do you feel like seeing, working, at, working so hard at trying to affect change, how do you view the COVID situation happening in terms of how quickly government has responded across the globe in implementing drastic changes to the system and what does that tell you about trying to implement similar changes or as radical changes um, to protect us all from health impacts which what we're doing right now is protecting us from immediate health impacts how do we how do we harness that and how do we make it immediate personal without it yet touching us quite as directly as COVID? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And I mean, a lot of people are drawing that comparison by saying, you know, we've seen governments respond quickly. We've seen very far-reaching decisions and the mobilisation of financial and other resources to tackle a problem um, in a way that if we mobilise similarly around climate change, we would help, you know, if not solve the problem, then at least tackle it much more effectively than we are right now. I think it's it's a good example and it's a good one to keep reminding policymakers of. I guess what it does illustrate is that a health impact um, that's very immediate does get people's attention and that's why be continuing to link climate change and health is incredibly important, both in the minds of the public and in the minds of policymakers. And what we know from the scientific evidence, and there's been some good studies done internationally as well as here, including by Sustainability Victoria, um, is looking at what people know in the and understand in the community about the links between climate change and health. And largely, they don't tend to make those connections unless they're it's it's you know somebody joins the dots for them quite explicitly Mm. but once those connections are made people say well it seems obvious and now it seems like common sense now that you pointed that out but they haven't made those connections themselves they're particularly influenced when um people are referred to you know 
respected agencies and like the World Health Organization, which despite, you know, the position of the U.S., the White House, the the, the World Health Organization is considered to be a very um, effective and respected organization that's incredibly important and authoritative. And when you tell people, you know, some of the things that they've said about climate change, they think, gosh, well, why didn't I know that? And if I don't know that, who's responsible for telling me? And they start to think, well, surely if this is a threat uh, to our health that's so significant and so profound, it's something that government should be acting on. And why aren't they telling me? Um, which I think is a really good question. So it does lead people to, you know, making that connection between their own personal health and that of their families and the wider community. And then it also starts to make them question about who's responsible, who has the duty of care mm. in, in ensuring that they have that information and that there are, um, you know, strategies being put in place to respond. So it's a useful, um, mm. like, communications and narrative and educative device that's not been, you know, more widely used, I guess, because there's only been small NGOs um, who've taken a leadership role like ourselves in in taking that on and not governments um, mm. who should be. And in that space, as if government doesn't pull its, um, pull its weight in that space, is, do you feel like there is re- breathing room? I'm conscious that we are running out of breathing room in this interview, but do you think that uh, significant change and good change can happen without government stepping in and, and playing the parental figure? Yes. Well, I don't see it so much as a parental figure because, I mean, we all, we in democracies, we elect governments, don't we? And then we give them our money to make decisions on our behalf (laughs) to do do. things in our own interests. So I think, um, you know, there should be an expectation that governments do act in the public interest. And and I think... It's a great theory, but but in practice it's not happening. And it hasn't no, been happening for a long time. It isn't happening, um, which is really regrettable. And something that I've sort of thought for quite a long time, probably for as long as I've been doing this work, is that we have to do it without and despite government. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, we're doing what we can to mobilise the health sector around this issue. We're bringing them together to, you know, offer that advice to government and to showcase the solutions. I think um, as that connection between climate and health becomes more apparent, we're certainly, you know, seeing other um, stakeholders like um, superannuation companies and health insurers getting more interested in this topic and certainly philanthropy. So, Superannuation um, you know, sounds very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so good. That's great philanthropists who, you know, often consider themselves environmentalists are now beginning to see this as a really useful vehicle um, and constituency to mobilise around mm. um, climate change. So we hope that as that connection becomes more apparent that we do see, you know, more support because more resources and more stakeholders and a a larger kind of coalition of the willing um, can eventually, we hope, lead to creating the environment in which inaction becomes politically untenable. That's um, thank you, Fiona. I mean, I think you know, as uh, as you've rightly put out there, I think you know both. Um, I mean, both Patrick and I, but equally, I think a lot a lot of people would hope that as this 
I think this this issue actually has the opportunity, I think, to bring together multiple different um, perspectives to actually create the change that's, that's required. So, you know, um, really want to thank you for sharing your story today and really being able to actually kind of, um, I think, you know, shine a really strong light on, one, the actual impact of climate um, in terms of actually on health outcomes, but also how health o- outcomes can also help us understand what is actually happening in our climate. Because I do think human beings will actually be able to experience their own health declines and actually start to be able to look at how that's actually being affected by the actual decline of um, the place we all call home, which is uh, we only have one of them. And, uh, you know, I think it's it's equally we only have one body. So if that mm-hmm. parallel can be drawn, I think that's going to be really, really beneficial in starting to move this forward. So thank you. It's, uh, you know, I think it's terrific, the work that you're doing. And um, I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to share your story. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to BAU Business as Unusual. Subscribe and learn more at baupod.co. That's baupod.co.